This podcast contains sensitive content which some may find disturbing. Information shared here should not be construed as medical advice. If you or someone you love needs help with trauma, chronic pain, or anything else we discuss here, please seek out a medical professional. All resources shared are for entertainment purposes only. All content represents the opinions of Kim and Anna and any special guests and do not necessarily reflect the positions of any organizations they work for. This is not ideal, but we're going with it. A mother-daughter podcast about chronic pain, trauma, mental illness, and more. Kim is a trauma therapist and certified addiction counselor who lives in Pennsylvania, USA. And her daughter, Anna, is a scoliosis sufferer and trauma survivor living in the tropical north of Australia. Join us each week as they discuss topics from their life experiences. Welcome to the show. Hello and welcome. This is Not Ideal, but we're going with it, the podcast. I'm Kim and I'm the mom. And I'm Anna. I'm the daughter. And today we have a very special guest who we have been heralding for the past couple of episodes, Dr. Robert Roten himself, who was the man who taught our uh, trauma competency seminar when mom and I were together in Michigan a month or two ago. And welcome, Dr. Robert Roten. Right off the bat, I want to get out of the way that his full title is Dr. Robert Roten. However, the last time we had a doctor on, we were very confused (laughs) about what we should call her. And I started calling her Karen and mom started calling her Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor. So we would love to get out of the way right at the forefront. Dr. Robert Roten, what would you like to be called on this episode? I'm okay with just Bob. I don't have any ego invested in this. Okay, excellent. Anyway. Bob is here after we we met him for a few days in a row listening to fantastic uh, information. He he has his PsyD. He specializes in trauma therapy, specifically with uh, children and youth. Is that right? Uh, in family dynamic? Mostly with families. I don't treat children by themselves. Okay, with families. All right. Well, excellent. We are so excited to have you here. We have uh, several questions from our listeners because we have mentioned that, you're, that you were going to be on in the last couple of episodes and they've sent in some questions for you. All right. But before we do that, I would like, <laughs> Bob, I'd love for you to just tell us a little bit about the Arizona Trauma Institute and what you're currently doing. So the Arizona Trauma Institute was actually built originally for one of the universities that I was teaching at. And they, they made a change in direction and said they didn't really want to pursue it anymore after uh, five years or so. Mm-hmm. And I was up to the place where I had been looking at retiring from them. I was also the faculty representative to the uh, board of directors. So I was sitting in a meeting with the, with the president. He said, if you're interested in it, I'll just sign it over to you and you can just take it private if you want. Mm-hmm. And so that, that actually created the Arizona Trauma Institute. I incorporated it a few weeks later. But our focus as an organization has always been on really helping people have correct information know how to bring healing to people's lives and Mm -hmm. understand that most of what people are prepared with professionally underserves trauma clients. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For most trauma clients, talk therapy is not a very effective approach to dealing with uh, their traumas. And so, you know, people get really frustrated and they go to therapy after therapy after therapy without the relief because people keep trying to use talk therapy. The easiest, the easiest way to kind of illustrate this is in 
people that have trauma histories, what you need to do is help them be able to regulate, mm. which is to stay in their executive functioning system. Traditional talk therapy collects a lot of content and then shifts into high levels of emotionality, mm. which pushes people right out of their executive functioning. So the typical talk therapy is not designed to work with a traumatized client. Mm. It's a, we are trying to help people become efficient, effective healers. And we are involved in politics of mental health. We work with families and courts. And in Arizona, we work a lot with the governor's office. We are actually in Arizona. Uh, last year, our governor decided to add childhood trauma as a public health issue. Mm -hmm. And we, act we actually now track it as part of our epidemiology data collection every year. So these are, these are some of the things we've been working on, educating judges, um, which mm. affects, it doesn't necessarily affect prosecutions, though it sometimes does, but it does affect sentencing and, dis and, and a disposition of cases. Mm. I do a lot of promotions for trying to get people to think differently, to work on developing skills. I'm incredibly frustrated at the, at the amount of willful ignorance that exists in the mental health culture. Mm. Um, and how much information's out there that they just ignore. Mm. So, so does true. that kind of give you a, a flavor of what I'm about? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yes, it sounds like you're doing a lot of things every day, a lot of different yeah. things. Yep. It sounds excellent. We just uh, exceeded a what we think is a milestone where we have now nearly 15,000 learners outside of the United States. Wow, wow. congratulations. That's great. So that is excellent. Yeah. Well, I was going to say to our listeners, we had uh, about three days of all of this excellent information uh, listening mm -hmm. to Bob share this. And I have a question for Bob about that seminar. And that question is, those people in that group were wild. And I am wondering if they were, if it's always like that. I mean, some of those people would not stop trying to just completely monopolize the class and just <laughs> completely tried. Oh my word. It was unreal. The, oh my word. And so I'm wondering if people are always like that in your seminars. Well, interestingly enough, I will have a lot of people that have been, have felt marginalized by the social and by the social structure of the mental health field, because they, they have been trying to get this stuff out and nobody really listens to them and they treat them kind of like a second-class citizen when they say mm -hmm. something like this. So when they actually sit there and they hear it, they're just like, they're just so excited to hear somebody say this that they just can't contain themselves. The other, <laughs> they, want to, they want to teach it with you. Yeah, yeah. The other piece that you run into quite often is the number of people that are so rigid because... Yeah. You're terrifying them with the, with what you're saying. And so I get really interesting reviews. I get people that really love me and I get people that really don't like me at all. Mm. And they don't seem to be able to come to a training of mine and be neutral. <laughs> well, we loved you. Well, well yeah. thank you. Yeah, we course. thought it was great. Bob, how did you get involved in trauma? <laughs> like most people, I was born into it. Okay. <laughs> you know, we talk a lot about the ACEs. I, in my own ACE score is a nine out of 10. Okay. You wow. might have to explain to our listeners what the ACE uh, test is. So the world's first social determinant of health, which the World Health Organization now collects for, uh, 24 of those on an ongoing basis, 
The first one was the fact that children that experience any of 10 items prior to the age of 18 will more than likely have adverse health effects from it. So those things are uh, physical, social, uh, physical, emotional, and psychological abuse, physical and emotional neglect, um, being involved in a family that has domestic violence, having a single, single or absent parent, having family members that are struggling with depression. You know, so I mean, these are some of the items that they're looking at. So what the original study, which was pub, was the original work started being done in the early 90s, when it was published, what they found was that if you had a certain number of these, what we call a dose response, if you had four or more, you were many more times likely to have health concerns later in life, 50 years mm-hmm. later. And we also now have a lot more science. When that first came out, uh, Vince Valetti and, and, and Bobby Andes got lots of angry responses from the community. But the reality is that as the studies began to be duplicated, Everybody that was duplicating it to prove them wrong ended up establishing it more and more strongly. And then in 2010, uh, a large-scale study was done with over 800,000 participants, and it basically suggested that 14% of the population have ten, have uh, four or more of these 10, mm-hmm. and that that 14% represents health-wise in, in, in our systems of care, about 90% of chronic illness. Mm-hmm. So, the, so the ACE is, is, stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences, and you were saying you actually had a nine yep. out of 10 on that. Wow. Okay. And so, so for you, that was your kind of finding your path forward through your own trauma or? Sure. I wanted to know what the heck made people so darn crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Why would anybody behave like this? Mm. So yeah, that's that started my uh, curiosity with these things. I became kind of a people watcher mm-hmm. early in life, and uh, you know, when I was going to college, and I'm not going to say when that was, but it it was long ago. They thought you dealt with every situation that came up from a point of view of getting people to have a a flooding experience and have a cathartic mm-hmm. moment through an implosion. And man, that's a really bad recipe for trauma victims. So mm. did you start right off saying I'm going to help people with trauma or did you sort of morph into that? Uh, actually, I just, when I got into the field, I was educated very well and he, uh, I was indoctrinated in, in a structural approach to working with people. And my professors were saying things like, you're the expert. If they don't do what you say, fire their asses. Hmm. And it was a very controlling tap top down. And then when you had serious issues, what they told you to do was the psycho and psychoanalytic approach to things. So I found within, within a few months of starting this profession that none of those things worked well. And so in my frustration, I'm like, well, you know, if that doesn't work and this is what I spent time and money learning how to do, what do I do now? And I actually got to the place where I was, contemplating getting out of the field mm-hmm. and one of my friends got ill and said i've got the tickets to these conf- to this conference would you like to go in my stead because i'm too ill to go and i don't want to waste the money so i i went and i met um bill o'hanlon there he was speaking as as a conference speaker there and i just really gravitated to what he was saying and 
and uh, went up to him at the break and talked to him a little bit and asked him some questions. And he was very polite. He said, I can't possibly answer any of those in this short time. This is pre, pre even those big blocky cell phones. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said, give me your number and I'll call you sometime and we'll, we'll figure it out. And I figured that was just a blow off at the time. And lo and behold, he did call me and, and now we've known each other for years and years. And lo and behold, people in the mental health field really do love to talk. <laughs> <laughs> but it wasn't so much that is that, that, uh, and I really do believe when people are ready, you know, the, what they need to learn kind of comes into place. But, you know, it was, for me, it pointed me in a direction and gave me some different ways of looking at things that started a whole journey for me. And I was, I probably worked another six, seven years in the field before I really got tuned into trauma itself and started making it kind of the focus of everything I would learn. And now you work exclusively with trauma? That is really all I do. Mm-hmm. Um, more, more today than anything else, I train other people to do it. I sit in a lot of sessions, but I am usually helping other people learn how to do this. I, I did a lot of my own research study and, and trial and error to learn how to do it well. And along the way, I've made some really, really good friends in this field. And I really appreciate, you know, their input along the way. And, and we share a lot of, uh, it's really nice to be able to pick up the phone and talk to somebody that understands the science of this well enough to have a conversation about it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's, that's been really um, kind of that struggle to figure out what worked with people led me into the trauma world. Hmm. All right. Well, we feel like we have already learned so much from you, but we also have a few questions from our listeners. Is this an all right time to ask you those few questions? I think I have a few and I think mom, do you have a couple as well? Yep, I sure do. Okay, perfect. Well, ask. I I can see if I can confuse you. Okay, good. (laughs) Perfect. Well, I have uh, the first one, which I think is a great great question. And the question here is, with somebody who has PTSD and who has been experiencing symptoms for uh, several years, and even though they've been working through it, are still experiencing symptoms, even though they're being intentional about trying to work through it, they've um, gone to professionals, they've done research, et cetera and they can't shake all of the symptoms of PTSD, they have asked, is PTSD something that can just has to be managed for the rest of your life? Or is it something that can be fired (laughs) and gotten rid of completely? So there's a complex answer to that. People can always heal from the things that they have experienced, and they can always have a better quality of life. However, depending on when it happened in your lifetime and the degree of focus you have you spend on it will determine how successful you are at that. Mm. So remember that in the developmental era, if that, if it's occurring early in life, when the brain is in its most vulnerable and it is developing all the basic neural pathways that are going to be developed into the habits that we have. I think I even in the video, I thought I showed you guys a video in your, in your group on the backwards bicycle. Yeah. 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 Okay. So here, that's an example. You have these pathways that are built. And once they're built, we, we just run on them automatically. We aren't mm. doing it intentionally. We're not, it's, it becomes, rather than being unconscious, it's non-conscious. It's now a, a flesh and blood structure in your brain and nervous system. And in order to change those, you have to be intentional, like what he was doing, spending months and months and months building a new neural pathway. And 
it doesn't mean the old neural pathways go away. It just simply means you are, you know, you're, you're practicing using new ones in mm-hmm. moments of stress and moments when you lose focus, you are going to access those old pathways. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't know what your relationship is, is as mother and daughter. It seems really nice, but I would be willing <laughs> to bet that both of you had experiences with your own parents where you said to yourself, I will never, ever say something like that to one of my children. Mm-hmm. But in stress, you hear it come right out of your mouth. Mm-hmm. And that what that means is you're, you, when you became dysregulated, you pulled into those old neural pathways and brought them forward. The familiarity, the ease at which you can access them has a lot to do with how long they were used and how intense they were. So if you're going to if you're going to move forward, the reality is you're, those are never going to go away. Hmm. But it, the more regulated you stay, and the more intentional you are, the more likely you are to stay in the new neural pathways that you're building. Hmm. But don't be fooled because the moment you lose focus or you get stressed adequately, you're going to go back to the old familiar patterns. Hmm. And just a follow up question to that one: um, Is that why you're saying talk therapy? is typically not designed to really focus on developing those new neural pathways and your type of therapy is more designed for that? Not necessarily. What I'm saying is that talk therapy goes after content that is usually negative, which underscores or reinforces pain, misery, difficulty, deficits, and what we really and what we want to do instead is underscore narrative in such a way that we highlight that people are powerful and competent mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and, and most talk therapy, the thing that most people, even the practitioners enjoy is that high level of emotionality. You know, that's when they know they've had a good session when the client has cried or when the motion, when emotions have been yeah. provoked, but with trauma, you don't want to do that. You want them to be able to, to see themselves being powerful. You want mm-hmm. them to see themselves as having competency because one of the hallmarks of what they they have experienced is a feeling of helplessness in the face of something overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Why would we ever take them into those negative, intense emotions? And that's what talk therapy does all the time. Mm-hmm. Instead, if you want to think about it as a progressive movement through treatment, you start with helping them be, have a greater uh, sensory awareness of their own body, which we call interoception. And as they are able to have a greater awareness, they're able to choose through, through acts of intentionality to regulate psychologically and emotionally. And, mm. as, and, and they also then have the opportunity because they're practicing a sensory awareness and that they can now also monitor and, and manage to some extent their motor functions you know, particularly the psychomotor functions that they have. What that does is create a state of what we call praxis. And I know that's kind of uh, one of those academic words. But what praxis is, is the ability to plan, conceive, visualize, sequence a path through, take action on that path, and to observe and try alternatives that are non-habitual. And so the goal of trauma therapy is always to get people into a state of praxis, Mm-hmm. not to get them into a state of high levels of emotionality. Mm. That actually, that this is a good feed into the next question. Actually, sorry to hit you with rapid fire questions here, but I have a feeling that this uh, idea of 
really necessary regulation might come into play uh, to this question as well, uh, which is from one of our listeners. And they say, for someone who feels like they are anxiety prone or prone to experiencing PTSD symptoms, maybe they've had uh, PTSD from different events in the past, what can they be doing in the here and now to better prepare themselves for how their body might react once this experience is over and they're talking about an experience there that is currently going on that they feel like is maybe traumatizing them and they just want to know, what can I do to prepare for what my body is going to do once I'm traumatized after this, if that makes sense? Well, what you're really talking about is how does somebody have personal resiliency and co- and focus on building personal resiliency? Hmm. Um People that have resilience does not mean that they aren't having awkward, uncomfortable, painful, hurtful moments. Mm-hmm. It simply mm-hmm. means that they have marshaled their resources to to be resilient in the face of struggles. So really, you know, if you want to take it to a biological place, the the thing that we need to have them be able to do is to get the functioning of the neocortex to be fully engaged, because that's where we can get what we kind of jokingly call the triple R that's where their body can relax, restore and uh, release that energy. And Mm -hmm. that is essential. If you, if you're dealing with an anxiety piece at all, what you often see is people that never can really relax. Well, and in fact, sometimes when you ask them to relax, it so overwhelms them that they become more tense. What that basically is saying that for them, relaxing that body is a threat response. And mm. if they're, that they, at some level within their being, the idea of being relaxed is actually pretty terrifying to them mm. uh, and makes them feel vulnerable. So we always focus to whatever degree that people can manage that is to being self body aware, aware of their own body. You know, what does what my body's experiencing right now mean and that often means in order for them to have that ability, they really have to have a good education on how bodies work, which mm-hmm. I think is the responsibility of any of us that are helping. You know, I'll have, I, I've had, and I think I used the example in the course you guys are in, you know, you have, you have something simple like this, that the, when the body moves into that aroused state, the muscles of the middle ear constrict. And so they can't process language well. And, and which means that they're not they're not able to understand well uh, the spoken language around them. Well, if you're a child and that's happening to you, you're not going to prosper in my, most school environments. You're also going to be left with guessing at what's really being meant rather than knowing what it is. So you're going to make a lot of false assumptions. Now move it forward. If you're an adult and you are aroused and you're not hearing then you're not getting feedback from people. You're not picking it up because it's not just the hearing piece. When the rest of the nervous system is engaged in that arousal, we don't perceive feedback. I don't know if you remember when I talked about the functioning of the ventral vagal complex as our social connection system, but it's very sensitive to stress. And as soon as it's stressed, it shuts down. So we're not reading facial cues well. We're not reading body posture, vocal tones very well. And so we tend to then assume that we are correct or that what we're seeing means what we do. And we, we run with that rather than do reality checking or fact checking. So people that have, if they're going to be resilient, really what resilience is, is the ability to stay present and have the choice of choosing to respond certain ways. 
it's really no different than what Viktor Frankl was talking about in his book, The Man's Search for Meaning, is you can go through all sorts of stuff and it's horrible stuff, but ultimately it's your ability to stay and to keep your body as relaxed as possible so you can choose what you want to do with that. Hmm. Wow. That's an excellent answer. Thank you so much for sharing that. I have one more question that I think is really important for me personally to ask. But first, I want to ask mom, do you have anything to, to add to share? Um, well, just any any ideas, Bob, on building resilience? Like, is that something that you should be doing on an ongoing basis? Or is that something you should be doing within a therapeutic environment? What, what are your ideas on really getting serious about building resilience? Mm, great, great point. Well, I think in the mental, from a mental health perspective, people think resilience is something we do so then we can get into talk therapy. Mm. And, and what that I think of so it as we get it, we help them be resilient so they don't need therapy, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of a different motivation. It's not the best business model, but. <laughs> well, no, because if they get well, they don't have to come back. But I have a sneaky suspicion there's plenty of people that need help out there. So. Mm-hmm. Um, for me personally, the idea of resilience is something you work on every day. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you you try to be intentional. You try to be deliberate. You're going to mess it up. Everybody does. But if you can stay intentional and you can stay focused on being present, and if you can keep your body relaxed, you're going to pick up a lot more uh, in an environment, and you're going to be you're going to respond in ways that build. This may sound esoteric, but it, it'll build a more peaceful world. Mm-hmm. And, and that's really, you know, what we want, a more peaceful internal world, a more peaceful relationship world, a more, you know, peaceful community world. It's really kind of a process that should be practiced and ongoing all the time. Mm-hmm. And it's not, it's not like we haven't known this. You know, we encourage people to eat well. We encourage people to exercise. We encourage them to, you know, spend time with important relationships. And, you know, what is that? That's all goes to build it, to build resilience. Mm. But we also encourage people in our society to not do those things. You know, don't lay down on your floor, put your feet up for 10 minutes and just meditate or relax because you're going to look silly to somebody. Go get a Red Bull and get back to work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's that yeah. kind of we have kind of a dual system, if you will, and and the second half of it is not very good for us. Mm-hmm. That's such a great point about societal expectations not necessarily being in alignment with what's actually best for us, and especially for people who have been through trauma. That I mm-hmm. think is such a such a great point. I have definitely run into that <laughs> several times. Which actually, my last question, is it all right if I ask that now? Mom, are you all right with that? Absolutely. Go right ahead. All right. So this is a question that I might have to, we might have to edit this out if I don't like the answer. However, (laughs) (laughs) it has to do with me. Uh, I'm going to use myself as an example because we've gotten a lot of write-ins actually from our listeners over the course of this uh, podcast, both in season one and season two, of people reacting you know, it's a natural human desire, at least it seems that way in our society, to want to compare suffering. And we have gotten a lot of write-ins from people, from listeners of the podcast, saying that they react with such intense anger when people try to relate to their trauma. And especially if they're relating to a traumatic experience with an experience that was hard, but not necessarily traumatizing, Mm -hmm. just really 
angry. And so I want to use an example of me and then follow up with uh, a question. And like I said, if I don't like the answer, we'll just cut it out. <laughs> so what you, you get to cut it out if it's not a, if you don't like the answer. I don't think that's <laughs> yeah. a good idea because that if, we could say things that are going to help you grow that you won't like at all. Oh, all right. right. All right. Fine, Bob. We'll keep it in whatever you say, but just keep in mind that we're going to be keeping it. <laughs> all right. So <laughs> recently, well, not necessarily recently, it could have been months ago, it could have been years ago, who knows. I was talking with an acquaintance of mine and that person was asking me about my surgery and, you know, I'm not huge on talking a lot about my surgery because I've talked about it so many times and I don't like to have to dredge it all back up, which, uh, I'm, I know Bob talked about in our seminar about how some therapists don't read the file because they don't want to get any preconceived notions about the client and just how awful that is because no, that person has told this story so many times. Why are you forcing them to continue to tell the story? Anyway, so mm. I told a little bit uh, about to this acquaintance about kind of my trauma story here. And this person um, tried to compare, and this is sensitive, tried to compare childbirth by saying, oh, I know exactly what that's like, you know, worst pain in the world, worst pain, you, you know, worse than you can ever imagine is childbirth. And I reacted with such, such anger, like not outwardly, but inwardly, I just, oh my word, even right now, as I'm talking about it, my hands are in little fists. <laughs> and so what I want to ask is, is anger like that something that can be expected when you experience PTSD? Or is that a personal shortcoming? <laughs> Of just being angry. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the fun answer would be, it's really all about you, Anna. But uh, <laughs> you're right. That would be a fun answer. <laughs> the, the, the reality is that you're talking about a phenomena that is, is kind of complex. So do you mind if I spend a little bit of time talking about it? Of course. Oh, please do. So you, you have in, in our, in society as a whole, human beings, particularly when they're emotionally immature, which means that they do not spend much time being regulated. They're not operating intentionally, but they're being in a state of reactivity most of the time. When they are exposed to somebody else's negative story, you're going to find a couple of different general responses. One is they want to bond with that person. And you, you see that bonding through negativity, which is in, in, we think of, and we frequently talk about it as being, you know, helpful, uh, you know, and with the reality, it, is, it isn't because it doesn't promote growth. Mm. And it's much, if you want to make a comparison, it's kind of like the way adolescents bond. Adolescents bond through mm. negativity. This horrible thing happened mm. to me and, oh, it was horrible. And I, and then what is the invitation is somebody else tell their horrible thing. And so it is a mm. very immature way of navigating the world. However, it's very common. Mm. And the more dysregulated you are, in other words, the further you are away from being able to be deliberate and intentional and being able to be in a calm body, the more likely you are going to bond through negativity. The other piece is that people that have had some negative experiences that tend to, remember when I talked about the difference between being adaptive and mitigating? Vaguely. Do you, yes. do you mom? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yep. We're both on the same page. Okay. So with the adaptive people will take action to get through something. It's like they'll take control. The mitigating people shut down, withdraw, or ha or have to do something to minimize it. Mm -hmm. So, what you'll run into is people that are particularly vulnerable to other people's story. They'll want to they'll want to redirect it. 
And what they'll do is, you know, you start talking about your awful experience. They don't want to, they don't want to really hear it. They don't have the, the self possession to sit in your darkness. And so they got to get free. Well, how's the best way to do that? Well, I'll redirect. I will talk about anything else. I'll tell you about my experiences. I'll, I'll invite you to, into my darkness, but I don't expect me to sit in yours. Mm-hmm. Some of the most helpful, most growth promoting relationships will be with somebody who is willing to sit in your darkness with that you. That is correct. That's that's really intimacy mm-hmm. is is yeah. for them to be able to sit in your darkness and try not try to fix it, not try to, you know, to say, well, it's not as dark as it could be. Um, that's not helpful. It's just to sit in that dark with you and mm-hmm. be be connected with you in those moments. And a lot of times we don't find that in family members or we sometimes don't find it in spouses. Sometimes when you're in pain, your spouse is one of the first and most reactive and they can't sit with it because their love of you Mm -hmm. and knowing that you're not in a good place overwhelms their system. Mm -hmm. Does that help at all? Yeah, absolutely. It does. That's an excellent answer. Every, I mean, everything you said echoes some of the things that we've been talking about, about what real empathy, what real intimacy looks like as far as, you know, we, we actually said almost that exact same thing of somebody crawling down. We use the, um, the analogy of a, a hole, of you being stuck in a hole with no ladder and somebody else, you don't want necessarily somebody else to throw down a ladder. You want somebody to come down with you and just sit with you in the hole and just be with you there. And not try to mm-hmm. fix it, not try to pull you out of it, not try to just give you a sandwich and make it fine and then leave. <laughs> just to be with you calmly and steadily and just be there. I mean, just excellent. Thank you so much for everything you've shared so far in this podcast. Just excellent material. So glad we're getting this out into the world. Just yeah. phenomenal. Top notch. <laughs> and that and that really gets back to Bob, you saying, you know, firing your client when you know if if you're going to be the expert and then if they don't follow what you say, you're going to fire them. That's very disruptive to that safe space of I'm willing to sit here with you and be a safe person for you. Is that right? That's true. I find very few therapists able to sit in other people's darkness. Mm-hmm. Most of them have their own unresolved darkness that they haven't learned to sit in themselves. So, mm-hmm. you know, they don't really have the wherewithal and the way we train them in colleges all across the world is we teach them that counseling is really about doing something to somebody else. We have all these mm-hmm. manipulative strategies to get them to move into wellness. And if, if, mm-hmm. if they'll just do this, then of course they'll be well. And mm-hmm. that is wrong. It's never been true. It, it sounds good, but it doesn't work. Yeah, that's that's like a do as I say, not as I do type situation, right? Correct. With all those therapists, who, yeah, who haven't actually healed themselves. Well, it's funnier for us because we work with a lot of companies uh, trying to help them move into being more trauma sensitive, and we use some simple measures on the level of dysregulation that the people are having because we're looking at how to target, you know, client assignment. How do you make the decision of who this client goes to? And what I've found, which is really funny, is a lot of times that the therapists in an organization like that score at a higher level of dysregulation than the clients that they are working with. Mm. And Bob, is there anything that our listeners can do, those who are considering um, getting care for their therapy? I mean, you're in Arizona, so they can't come to your, um, unless they live in Arizona, right? Where are you located? Mesa? Yep. Well, it's in the Phoenix metropolitan area. Okay. 
Is there anything that you know you can recommend to the clients or to to potential people who are thinking about getting into therapy? What should they look for for the type of trauma informed care that you think is the most beneficial? Well, I think they should interview the person that they're going to go see and find out how much they know about physiology and current science. Mm-hmm. You know, I I always suggest people do a little bit of reading. I think one of the books that I recommend all the time for people is Bessel van der Kolk's 2014 book, The Body Keeps the Score. Mm-hmm. I also, a friend of mine in California, uh, Louis Cozzolino has written several books, some, some for therapists and some for just people in general about understanding the neuroscience and how it affects our day-to-day lives and decision-making. And people often think it's, it's some kind of a deficit in them when they're behaving exactly as their body's designed to behave. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's the starting point. Can your therapist help you understand that a lot of what you're doing that is creating problems for yourself and others is actually biologically correct? And until you can get the body managed, those things are going to continue. That's great. And now we can, we we do want to direct people to your uh, website and to your YouTube channel. As we wrap up here, um, I've already been, I, since our training with you, I've been going through all of your resources. You have a lot of wonderful resources. Can you tell people where to go for those things? Sure. The uh, The YouTube page that we have is just Arizona Trauma YouTube page. I I don't have the link in front yeah, of me. I'll look it up. If you do a search for <laughs> Arizona Trauma Institute. Yep, you have your you, own YouTube channel, yep. Yep, we, we have our own channel. And there, I don't know how many hours of material is on there, but we have in the playlists, we have over three hours of individual exercises on self-regulation. We have an entire training on how to work with children that have been traumatized because traditional parenting programs don't really address trauma. Uh, my friend Eric has several things on professional resiliency on there. So we have a lot of those things available. I was going to say, I, I looked it up and to the surprise of no one in this chat, the name of the YouTube channel is Arizona Trauma Institute, just for those of you who are wanting to look it up after. Yes. And the website is aztrauma.org. And I did notice that um, because you you train therapists, but you also treat trauma. And so there's a variety of different resources uh, depending on Mm -hmm. what your need is. And I did notice that because of the COVID-19 crisis, you're offering some new trainings. I'm actually signed up for an an online one that's coming up. So I'm very excited about that. Which one? Uh, The narrative one. Oh, yeah. I love that. Yeah. I can't wait. We are so thankful that you came on our program with all of these wonderful insights and perspectives. Is there anything that you want to leave our listeners with or anything you want to say just to wrap it up for us, Bob? Um, I don't really have anything to wrap it up with. I just want to encourage people to be intentional in what they do, Um, which you can't be if you're overwhelmed and, and feeling aroused all the time. And if you can be intentional, you're going to have better relationships. You're going to have better health. You're going to have, you know, greater, stronger personal life. So that would be my wish for folks. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Bob. We have absolutely loved having you on. I feel even more informed, even after spending several days with you. And I'm so glad that our listeners are able to benefit from your expertise as well. So thank you so much for coming on. You are always welcome here. 
Yes. And I guess we will see you guys next week. Thank you again to Bob. And this is Anna, the daughter, signing off. And we will see you guys next week. Bye-bye. And this is Kim just reminding you that the website to look up more of those resources is aztrauma.org or on YouTube, the Arizona Trauma Institute. You can also find us at at Not Ideal Podcast on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And I am Kim. I'm the mom signing off. And Bob, did you want to say goodbye? Goodbye, all. (laughs) Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you guys for joining us today. Stay tuned for more podcasts from Anna and Kim on the new series, Not Ideal, But We're Going With It. Also, check out their new website at www.notideal.net.